Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us in this latest episode of Chester Takeaway in-depth video um, conversations with a leading expert on a country or an issue of concern for British Army and Defence. Obviously, these reflect the views of these two individuals, not necessarily that of the Army or the Ministry of Defence. And today we're discussing Iran, right? You might have forgotten already that at the start of this year, we were concerned about an escalation with Iran across the Middle East following a strike on a leading um, revolutionary guard um, leader, um, Qasem Soleimani. And a lot of our concerns and in, in, in counterattacks by Iran on US facilities in Iraq and, and tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran, as well as Israel and Iran seem to have dropped from our screens at these conversations. Well, that's understandably so because of the pandemic, which has also impacted Iran. But um, but these issues have not disappeared. Questions about um, Iran's regional ambitions, um, security and defense questions that it poses, but as well as the challenge of finding a policy that actually works in engagement in Iran, those are still very much alive and kicking, and they will shape the future of the Middle East and how we engage with the issues there. Um, so today we're thrilled to have Dina Esfandari, who's a leading expert on Iran and observed and analyzed the country and its nuclear enrichment program as well as the approaches to it for many years and someone who's also contributed to our discussions at Chase. Um, Dina, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I suppose the first question is pretty much the immediate one, which is COVID-19. So Iran was one of the first countries to see a huge infection rate and it has clearly um, affected the country with, um, uh, with losses and spread of the infection. Where are things are in Iran with the virus and responses to it? First, Azia, thanks for having me. Um, in terms of your question, yeah, absolutely. It's been very tough for Iran. As you mentioned, it was one of the first countries that was impacted by the outbreak of the disease. And the Iranians, like many other countries in the world, weren't really prepared for it. Um, uh, the upside is they, in terms of their um, health response, the health sector's response, they got things on track pretty quickly. Um, and so they got a little bit better at dealing with it. But the main problem that they faced was that when they had to lock down the country, their economy, which was already struggling um, quite a bit, goes without saying, um, it just, it, it took a real hit. And the decision to reopen the country ended up being made a lot earlier than it should have been made because economically Iran couldn't survive. The state couldn't survive. It couldn't, it couldn't help um, Iranians uh, adequately enough at a time where it was struggling uh, economically quite severely. And so they had to open up the country and it, once they opened it up, um, we ended up finding uh, ourselves in the cycle that again, many other countries are facing now, um, one where the infection rate is spiking again. But I think the key takeaway from the outbreak of the disease in Iran, there's a couple of them. The first is, is that economic angle, that that was what drove Iran's desire to reopen so quickly, even though it hadn't gotten the infection rate under control. The second one is um, the issue of nationalism. The Iranian state, the Iranian people, I mean, the, the idea of nationalism really brought everybody together and, um, and the state really played on that and, and really pushed this idea that, you know, we're dealing with this all together. We have to come together in order to be able to tackle this disease properly. And you saw this a little bit at the beginning of the outbreak when some of the, well, in fact, a big number of the Iranian leadership was getting infected and they were publicizing it and really pushing it forwards as a, as a almost a badge of honor showing that, look, we are like you, we are no different to you. The disease doesn't know the difference between you and I. Um, and so we will tackle this together. 
Uh, and then one other thing that I think is, um, is an important takeaway from all of this is the way that the Revolutionary Guards, the IRGC, has dealt with the outbreak of the disease. Um, much like you would see them do in the region, they really wanted to present themselves as the protectors of the Iranian nation. So you saw them come out and, and be on the front line of dealing with the disease in terms of, for example, disinfecting the streets or spraying the public transport system um, and, and you know, helping healthcare providers. And the idea was for them to really portray themselves again as the defenders of the Iranian nation, as the ones who bring Iran together. Um, unfortunately, I think the majority of the Iranian public still thinks that the government's response wasn't adequate. Um, but, uh, but I think a lot of people will think that about their governments. Yeah, uh, fair point. It's a universal, I think, sentiment across the world. Um, and Dina, I think um, how Iran has responded or uh, got um, struggled responding to COVID-19 due to the sanctions um, also raises the kind of question on um, the maximum pressure policy that has been applied to um, um, change Iran's policy portfolios and nuclear enrichment or uh, presence in the Middle East and etc. Um, clearly some of it was economic and clearly it backfires. I mean it brings Iranians one way or another together in realizing that um, if they didn't face sanctions maybe some of the medication or PPEs and economic responses might have been different even though that might be that might not be true depending on how the state has handled it but it seems like both domestically um, but also regionally, the maximum pressure policy approach hasn't really worked. I mean, it hasn't really delivered a shift um, or slowing down of Iran's questions. And you might even say that basically triggered back again the nuclear enrichment conversation in the country. So I think that when you talk about a policy, it's usually very difficult to give a straightforward answer of whether it's worked or it hasn't. And I really think that this is one of those rare cases where you can say without hesitation that maximum pressure has absolutely backfired. It hasn't achieved any of its objectives if it had clear objectives, which in itself are hard to figure out because, because the Americans haven't made it clear what it is. Um, and there are two, two dimensions to it. You have the domestic impact and then you have the, the Iran's foreign policy impact. In terms of the impact it's had domestically, I think you touched upon the main point, which is again, the Iranian government was able to take the high ground, something it can't do often, by saying, look, we negotiated an agreement, we came to a compromise, we then implemented the agreement, we continued to implement the agreement, even though everybody thought we were going to be the ones that would walk away and mess this up first. Um, and the US was the one who walked away and reimposed the sanctions. So they were then able to drum up this, um, whatever little support they had in Iran to say, look, we're the good guys here we've done everything right. There, we, haven't, we haven't missed a beat. Um, it's the Americans that are pushing us into doing this. They're the ones that are squeezing us. They're the ones that are making difficult. And in that respect, maximum pressure has worked if that was an objective. If the objective was to gratuitously squeeze the average Iranian, yes, that's happening. Um, it's become, you know, it, I mean, the economic troubles, I, I, if I had to go into it, I would have to write an essay about it. But just to name a few, un unemployment has risen, inflation has gone through the roof, it's, it, everything is more expensive for the average Iranian, and things have become genuinely difficult. But that shouldn't be an objective in itself, right? If the objective is to change Iran's behavior in some way, either domestically or in foreign policy, then yes, this has backfired. What has Iran changed in the region? If anything, maximum pressure has 
cornered it and made it more willing to be more aggressive, to lash out um, in ways that perhaps it hadn't necessarily done, uh, at least during the negotiations of the nuclear deal and, and arguably even in the aftermath of um, the 2015 nuclear deal. So Iran now is more aggressive in the region, more willing to take risks, attacking tankers in the Persian Gulf, um, securing its interests in countries like, you know, Iraq. Um, and there is nothing that the U.S. has done in the last couple of years that is preventing Iran from continuing this nefarious, these nefarious activities. Um, I suppose some of that also relates to or, or the future of some of these activities um, or ambitions for Iran's part also depends on the economic conditions, right? So it's one thing you say, look, I want to run a network of proxies across the Middle East. I want to um, I, I challenge US and US presence and push them out of Iraq. I want to pose a threat to Israel so they feel my presence. I want to still keep Assad in power. But then in the end of the day, there's a bill to pay and COVID-19 um, has already started challenging it, right? We have seen a drop in the funds they sent to Hamas, to Hezbollah, um, to some of their proxies and et cetera. Um, in light of where things are domestically and economically and regionally um, with Saudi Arabia, et cetera, what do you see um, to be the main ambitions of Iran regionally at the moment? I mean, it's got a wide footprint from the Gulf all the way to Lebanon. Um, and what are the um, underlying vision behind it, its possibilities um, and the future from now on? So again, I think we have a tendency to view Iran as a different country or a special country in terms of what it aims to achieve in its foreign policy. But actually, much like any other state, its core um, foreign policy objectives and, and drivers in some ways are, are no different to any other countries. It wants to protect its borders. Um, it wants to ensure uh, prosperity within the country. Um, it wants to expand its influence to ensure that nothing really poses a, a real threat to it. The problem is the way Iran translates that into policy. If you're sitting outside of Iran, then it looks aggressive in some ways, and in some ways it really is. But Iran doesn't have the traditional means um, at its disposal for making foreign policy. It's an isolated state that can't really build alliances or certainly can't anymore as a result of um, the post-nuclear maximum pressure time. Perhaps we could have envis envisioned a situation where as a result of the nuclear deal, Iran started behaving somewhat like a normal state and building normal relationships. But it's once again in a position where it can't really do that. So what does it have to do? It has to resort to means that other normal countries wouldn't really resort to. And building influence through building ties with proxies and non-state actors in the region has been for Iran a very successful way of ensuring that it succeeded in its foreign policy. So Iran is going to continue to want to expand its influence and it will continue to use proxies to do it because so far that's paid off. What does that mean in terms of what it's actually going to do in the region? It means that it's going to ensure that a country like Iraq remains within its sphere of influence. And Iraq is a key country for Iran for a range of reasons because of the, the constituency it has there, the religious constituency it has there, because of the almost you know, 910 miles of porous border between the two countries because Iraq helps it economically while Iran is under sanctions. All of that to say Iraq is a key, key um, part of its foreign policy. Uh, and, and then there's kind of like an order of priorities in the way that it deals with countries in the region. So for example, 
when it looks across the Persian Gulf at its Gulf Arab neighbors, Iran sees them as countries that are a nuisance, but that it should try to at least build some kind of relationship with, perhaps not in order to make things all happy and rosy, but at the very least to de-escalate tensions. And I think actually, ironically, that has been a somewhat of an upside to the maximum pressure campaign because the Gulf Arab countries are so afraid that the maximum pressure campaign is going to go off. And Iran has demonstrated that it's not afraid to retaliate in those countries. So I think tensions between those countries have somewhat diminished um, and you see them actually cooperating on, on issues like COVID at the moment. In a country like Lebanon, which is quite far away, Iran has a key stakeholder. Hezbollah is a key success story for it. It's shown that it's a way for Iran to really um, project force and influence far, far from its borders. And that's going to remain uh, like this for as far as I can see. So Iran kind of deals with the region in a, in a hierarchical manner. Um, and it will continue to deal with the non-state actors that it has that work with it, and it will continue to build influence in that way. Um, and, and, you know, but in terms of its objectives, it isn't too different to any other country. Um, Dina, I mean, I've been fascinated with Iran for more than a decade now, you know, including the research trips I've done in the country or reading literature, living, um, reading things about its legal system, its governance structures, its foreign policy machinery. I mean, I find it to be one of the most fascinating state structures, right? Um, and obviously that is important for us to understand because if we think about how its foreign policy decisions are made, how its security assertions or threat perceptions are processed and responded and actualized, um, understanding how that state is formed, what, who does what is actually an important aspect of it. Uh, and in this case, I think a lot of people often can get confused on there's a supreme leader who has absolute authority, but there's a president with, that comes in with elections, there's a parliament with some limited role, but plays a role. Um, there's <clears throat> the regular military forces as we are accustomed to an army and air force and a navy. And then there's revolutionary guard. And then there's a whole intelligence, domestic security apparatus. There are civilian militias that align with somewhere along the line. Um, how does this all come together in how <clears throat> Iran formulates its foreign policy engagement with the world um, and how it actualizes some of these priorities. So firstly, let me reassure you, Zia, I've been working on Iran for the better part of the last 15 years, and I still get confused by the way the Iranian state works. Um, and I think everybody will tell you the same thing. And that's largely because it's a very fluid system. Um, it's a factional system, which means that these factions are constantly competing against one another, constantly negotiating with one another, constantly bargaining with one another. And on top of that, what makes it even more complicated is that the factions aren't set in stone, which means that somebody who at one time was a hardliner, you might find that in five years down the line, suddenly finds himself in, in a, the moderate camp. So it's a, it's a really complicated system. I think the, I, I would uh, offer some main takeaways, basically. The main takeaway for me is that it is, it is one that is based on negotiation and bargaining. That's the first thing. That explains the fluidity of the system and that explains how a lot of decisions are made. So you might think that that's a little counterintuitive because 
there's a supreme leader who, who is known to be the absolute authority, yes, but decision-making is still based on discussion, negotiation, and bargaining. Who has the supreme leader's ear, who doesn't? Um, who's succeeded in past policymaking, who hasn't? And all of this gives you relative influence over someone else. The second thing is, the supreme leader may be the final decision maker, but he's not the only decision maker, which goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is that you need to have his ear at a given time. So I'll give you an example. For example, in the lead up to the, to the nuclear deal with Iran, Iran's president Rouhani had a mandate from the supreme leader to go ahead and to negotiate this nuclear deal, which is why even though throughout the process, the supreme leader at times would make speeches making, you know, setting red lines that seemed absolutely impossible for the negotiators to deal with at the time, we ended up finding ourselves with a nuclear deal where some of those red lines were actually crossed, but it was okay because the president had been given a mandate to do that. So, that's key in understanding the way Iranian foreign policy works. And then the other issue is um, who has more influence on specific foreign policy uh, files at any given time. So there's a tendency, or there has been at least in the last few years, to, like I said, when you view Iranian foreign policy in a hierarchical manner, the important areas where Iran's security really is at stake, those tend to be in the hands of groups like the Revolutionary Guards and their, their foreign branch, which is the Quds Force, um, which was what General Soleimani um, used to lead. Uh, so a file like Iraq, for example, tends to be um, in the hands of the Quds Force and the IRGC. They tend to be the ones calling the shots. But even that, even that depends on what's going on at any specific time. So for example, again, under the nuclear negotiations, when those were working, uh, they, they seemed to be bearing fruit, then the Rouhani administration had a little bit more sway to ask um, uh, the, the supreme leader to basically give them more power to negotiate with the IRGC in terms of making policy in Iraq. So basically, long story short, it's really, really complicated. It is. And I think, you know, that's why maybe people often um, are tempted to read um, what Iran wants to achieve in the Middle East through a narrative of the Sunni-Shia kind of sectarian war unfolding and Saudi Arabia is leading the Sunni camp, but Iran is leading the Shia camp, um, so all the Shiites are together in the region against the Sunnis. I mean, do you think that framing, um, does it have some validity if the Iranian state is that complex, it's driven by what any other state is driven by, its interests, its presence, its achievements, and etc. Is that narrative even a helpful language to um, develop a framework to understand how Iran sees itself in the region and why it sees Saudi Arabia as a challenge or what it seeks to achieve? I don't, I don't really think so. Um, not least of all because, uh, first of all, the ideology that drove Iranian foreign policy right after the revolution, you kind of had that revolutionary fervor and, and ideology and, you know, we need to spread this revolution to the rest of the region. That's kind of died down a little bit. Um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And in some areas, you do see uh, a little bit more sectarianism in Iran's foreign policy in the region. Again, um, I think Iraq it would be a good example of that. But ultimately, if you think about it, Iran is part of the minority sect of Islam, which means that if it pushes forward this idea that all we do are, is, is to protect Shias 
in Islam, then actually it's, it's restricting its own potential influence without anybody doing anything. And actually, I think Iran realized that relatively quickly. So rather than saying we are the defenders of all Shias in the region, they want to say we are the defenders of minorities in the region. We are the defenders of all Muslims in the region. And so, and, and in, in terms of the, the actual impact in their foreign policy, you see that because they're also not afraid to work with groups that aren't necessarily Shia Muslims throughout the region. And they've done that throughout the time that they've been in power. So I actually think Iran's foreign policy, rather than being driven by sectarianism, for example, is driven by opportunism. So depending on the arena that Iran is in, depending on the opportunity that Tehran is presented with, it will take it. And it's, and it's been very good at doing that. Sometimes it's a sectarian opportunity. More often than not, sectarianism is too restrictive for Iran. And so it wants to build its influence. So it's going to look at other ways to build ties with, uh, with uh, groups in foreign countries. Yeah, I suppose what you said echoes itself in how it went from condemning Taliban and all of the literature on it was really negative. And as U.S. is pulling out, it, it, Taliban conversations and publications have turned positive with reaching out to Taliban in Afghanistan and et cetera. So it shows adaptability mm -hmm. rather than just a religious <clears throat> boundary. And one final question, Dina, and that's the question, you know, okay, so maximum pressure doesn't work, clearly. Domestically, it solidifies and people are accustomed to economy. They've been under sanctions for, you know, 30, 40 years now and, and economic conditions do raise criticism. There was a letter by a leading Shia cleric again recently to Atala Khomeini saying this current thing is actually not working, but actually very gentle criticism, but not necessarily regime changes. People tend to speak about it. Um, but, or is the answer the opposite? We accept Iran as it is and accommodate, but there are some clear security and defense issues that impact all of these areas Iran wants to assert in interest. And we also have a lot of human rights concerns for democratic conditions in the country, not necessarily the rule of type of government that we prefer, that's not up to us, but at least the rule of good governance and rule of law and human rights standards. For example, in dual citizens being imprisoned as a bargaining chip. What kind of an approach actually works therefore? I mean, are we stuck between accommodating everything Iran does domestically and regionally? I'm saying, okay, you know, this is it, what can we do? Or go to the Trump or MEK kind of direction of maximum pressure, regime change, topple everything, which is impossible and it doesn't have any fruit on the horizon that is meaningful. Or is there a more nuanced approach we can take in engagement with Iran as the UK, as Europeans? I think firstly, it's really important to understand that um, a change in government you know, while desirable to those of us sitting outside and actually probably desirable to many people sitting inside the country, it's not something that can come from outside. After all, you know, the Iranians had a revolution in 1979 because the government was too close to foreign influencers and, and foreign countries um, uh, trying to call the shots in Iran. So again, Iran, like any other country in the world, is fiercely nationalistic. And they're like, better the devil we know, which is our own government, than a foreign devil coming in to tell us what to do. Now, that doesn't mean they're happy with their government. And you have a lot of discontent in Iran, a great amount of frustration. But the will, the desire to change that government has to come from within. Anytime it comes from outside, it immediately gets discredited inside the country. So that's the first thing. And that's part of the reason why I think maximum pressure just isn't working in Iran, because the pressure is coming from outside. And hey, the Iranian government is doing plenty to ruin its own chances of staying around um, for much longer anyway. So 
you know, you really have to leave it up to the Iranian public. In terms of what you can do outside, as you say, there aren't a million solutions to this, and they usually range between pressure slash war and full-blown engagement. And I think that the right solution is probably somewhere in the middle, but with an accent on engagement. We've seen that Iran, or the Islamic Republic of Iran at least, responds relatively well to engagement. And I think the nuclear deal is a good example of that. Of course, it didn't resolve all our problems. And of course, it ended up in a period where Iran, after the nuclear deal, because it had compromised on one issue, was perhaps lashing out on a range of other issues in the region. And that's undesirable. But you also can't be naive and expect that you're going to resolve every single solution through the course of one set of negotiations with a country like Iran. It has been an isolated, uh, I think, almost you could say a pariah state for a long time. So you have to gradually give it the will to want to integrate with the other countries in the region. And the only way that you can do that is through some kind of dialogue. You have to offer it uh, an interest, a carrot, to want to continue engaging with you and to want to continue acting like a normal country rather than one that's aggressive and that push pushes its interests in the region. So honestly, from my perspective, engagement is the only way forward. I actually think that right after the nuclear deal, you had this um, initiative that was put into place uh, called the high-level dialogue between Iran and the European Union, where the EU was engaging Iran on a range of issues, not just issues that Iran wanted to be engaged on, like things like boosting trade in the economy, but things that were also problematic for Iran, like its human rights issues, for example. And I think that's probably the way forward. Um, having said that, it's also undeniable that there are going to be times where the Europeans and the Americans are going to have to contain Iranian aggressiveness. But again, it'll be a question of a delicate balance between um, really wholehearted engagement of this country in order to resolve issues or see things the same way and eventually integrate it, punctuated by times where they're going to have to contain Iran's aggressiveness. Dina, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation and I think you are right. All of us are trying to understand Iran decode Iran and that's because it's a very dynamic and fluid country and it's a unique society, it's a unique political structure and a legal structure and a defense structure that makes it very difficult to observe and come up with responses. Um, thank you so much and thanks to everyone who watched this recording and if you want to watch more of these um, log on to www.chaser.org.uk and thank you so much. Thanks for having me.